This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition and I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing and it often starts with the carnivore cures all meat elimination diet. Today I had the pleasure of sitting down again with Dr. Donald Lehman. Dr. Donald Lehman and I talk a lot more about amino acids, the importance of certain proteins, meal timing, a little bit of exercise and what it really takes to have longevity, especially when it comes to the diet. Dr. Donald Lehman is a professor emeritus in the Department of Human Nutrition at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's internationally recognized for his research about dietary protein and amino acids. He has extensive research focus on muscle development and in studies of metabolic regulation for obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. He has over 120 peer-reviewed research publications. He has 30 years as a professor of nutrition at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He is the head of the Department of Foods and Nutrition, associate dean of the College of Agriculture, a doctorate degree in nutrition and biochemistry, and a master's degree in biochemistry. Dr. Don and I also talk a lot about bone health and what it really requires to have strong bones. Is it really just a calcium thing? We talk about that nuance as well. I love that Dr. Don always focuses on what is in the research rather than what is just common knowledge or that he likes to disseminate what is really researched and then shares his findings based on that. I love the conversation. I think there are a lot of tactical things that we can do eating a heavy meat-based diet. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. Lehman. It's so good to have you back on my channel. This is, I think, the third time we've interviewed. The second one was during the Carnivore Summit, so I'm super excited. I love, again, all the research you do with protein, amino acids. Uh, For the people that may not have watched the first one, if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Don Lehman. I'm a professor of nutrition at the University of Illinois for 31 years. I actually did research and teaching, so I'm I'm trained as a nutritional biochemist by training, left the university 2012, actually, uh, decided that one of the things that I saw was research didn't get translated to the public very well. So I had some opportunities to do consulting and be involved with sort of changing the trajectory of some companies and things and in nutrition. And so uh, I decided I'd do that as sort of the second half of my professional career. There is so much fear in the carnivore space, especially in the, you know, in the diet space where we eat a lot of meat and heavy meat. And then the first thing I hear, especially with people with slight, uh, maybe inflammation in the kidneys is 
the doctor's telling me I need to reduce my red meat. Protein is going to kill my kidney function. And so I, and especially maybe their GFR is a little bit higher than normal or their BUN is. What are your thoughts with excess kidneys or excess protein for my kidneys? I think we have to sort of put it in the range of, you know, what sort of normal and then people who take it to extremes. Um, I think there's a lot of data that between the, the low RDA, about 0.3 grams per pound, up to something above a gram per pound, protein is totally safe. And there's lots of research on that. As people go into the carnivore world, and I frankly, I don't think it's been studied as well. I just don't really know. High protein in general doesn't damage the kidney. The kidney adapts to that and functions pretty well. But again, I can't really say, you know, are, are people eating uh, two grams per pound? You know, I, I, I don't really know what the extremes of that would be. So the, the easy way to test it would be to just cut back a little bit and see if everything normalizes. But the research tells us that for normal people, higher protein diets don't actually harm the kidney. They actually protect it. But, you know, I don't know. With everything in life, there's probably some extreme that you probably shouldn't cross. And you could talk about vitamin D or, or you know, uh, vitamin C, and you get the same answer. Sure. So again, we're talking about some people who might be following really extremes, and I don't think there's a clean, clear answer for that. But for the average person, protein is safe through the entire range that's considered acceptable. So in the carnivore space, I would say that the general recommendation is one gram per one pound of ideal weight. But I think the typical person, unless you're working out hard, I think they consume about 0.8 grams per one pound of ideal body weight. So it's not an excessive amount. They that, that should be that should be totally safe. That's well within all of the studies. Uh, there's a lot of research up to one gram per pound. Uh, I think within that range, it's totally safe. Uh, you know, and above that, it just hasn't really been studied. So it's hard for me to say it is. But anything between 0.8 grams per kg up to even three grams per kg has been studied and appears to be totally safe. And then when you said that um, the studies showed that eating protein actually is supportive of kidney function, can you talk a little bit about that? What do you mean by that? What we've seen and what a variety of other people have seen is when we compare the RDA, 0.8 grams per kg, with like 1.6 what we see is that the rate of creatinine clearance, the rate of urea clearance actually accelerate. GFR becomes more efficient and you clear the protein, you clear the urea from the blood even faster. So all of the data that we've seen within those ranges, which translates from about 0.3 grams per pound to about 0.7 grams per pound, it actually makes the kidney function better. Mm-hmm. One of the things we know is when you go to a lower protein diet, like the RDA, your kidney actually shrinks in size and your capacity for clearance actually goes down. One thing I'll say about those markers is we found that some people, it's just purely dehydration. So when they start drinking more water, that can also improve those markers as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Protein requires more water. And, you know, if we're talking about people who are just moving into it, that is a real critical time for high fluid intake. 
Uh, it affects your GI tract. It affects your blood volume. So, you know, people trying keto, you know, how do you adapt to going from three grams per pound to one gram per pound? You should do that over a few weeks, probably. You probably shouldn't say, okay, I'm car- I'm going to be a carnivore starting tomorrow and I'm going to eat, you know, two pounds of beef per day. Uh, I mean, that people shouldn't do that overnight. They should do that over 10 days or two weeks. Sure, sure. Assuming that we're just considering the physical, because some people with the mental side, if they were to slowly ban, I I totally get it. I think from a physical overall health, I think that is probably the best. But then some people just like to rip the bandaid, even if they have symptoms, which I I know that's what you're alluding to. And and so we know that if you do that, uh, if you go from three grams, 0.3 grams per pound to 0.8 or one, you're going to have higher urea in your blood for the first couple of days. You may even have some higher ammonia in your blood because the body has to adapt, the liver, the kidney, everything has to gear up those enzymes to handle it. And we know that takes a few days to a week. So, you know, if you jump in, you might experience some sort of partial negative things for a few days. I, that's published research. Sure. What about the thoughts where people say if you eat beyond a certain amount of protein that you need, it doesn't get absorbed or it gets wasted? I know last time you kind of mentioned what it really happens. If you can ex- explain that to us. Digestion absorption is basically 100% complete. So no matter what you eat, again, we have to distinguish between day one. Again, if you're going from really low to really high, your GI tract may not be able to handle that for a few days. Uh, but if you adapt to it, um, you know, week to 10 days, uh, you'll absorb whatever. If you eat 100 grams in a meal, you'll absorb, you know, digest and absorb it all. What we know is that the metabolic use of it, the efficiency goes down as it gets higher and higher. And so we often say that if you eat more than 50 to 60 grams of protein at a meal, which is sort, you know, sort of in the range of, eight ounces of meat, if you eat more than that, the efficiency is going to go way down. Um, if it's your only source of food, uh, you may have to eat it just to get calories. If you're not eating any carbohydrates, depending on what your fat level is and things like that. But uh, we know the efficiency goes down in terms of muscle health, probably plateaus somewhere around 50, 55 grams at a meal. And above that, it may cause you to have a larger liver or a larger kidney or a larger GI tract, but it's not going to cause you to have larger muscles. Okay. So beyond a certain amount per meal, per meal, your muscles may not efficiently use the remainder, but that doesn't mean you're not absorbing them. It just may cause other organs to use it and then have to absorb it. Hey guys, just to let you know, my carnivore cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Right. Okay. I mean, one of the things to keep in mind is that if you're a non-growing adult, you and I, for example, 
every gram of protein that we eat per day has to be converted into energy because otherwise you're you're depositing protein somewhere. And if you're a non-growing adult, you're not. So, you know, in the short run, you might get a little bigger liver or you might get a little bigger muscle. But basically, if I eat 50 grams per day or 150 grams per day, I have to burn all of it. Uh, and that's one of the things people would get confused about. But to your question, you're going to digest and absorb it all. And you're then going to have to metabolize it all in some way. And the efficiency goes down, you know, the efficiency of use goes down as you get above about 55 grams at a meal. And so the solution then becomes more meals. You know, so weightlifters, uh, you know, the average person might have three meals a day uh, with 50 grams of protein or 45 or something like that. A weightlifter might add in a fourth meal, would be more efficient than just making the meals larger. Last time, I think we talked a little bit about why that's why we're not the biggest fans of one meal a day. Not only is it that your muscles can't efficiently use all that protein or the amino acids, then it's also a stress on your digestion. I think you talked about how quickly we can burn calories. Do you remember what that amount was? So if you just take a, you know, a very simple math and say, well, let's, let's assume an average adult's burning 2,400 calories per day. Okay. So that would be, you know, about 100 grams per hour. Uh, and, you know, obviously exercise and sleep make a little difference in the rate. But generally, right after you're eating, most people aren't exercising. They might be sleeping, I suppose. But, uh, you know, so 100 grams per hour is about what you're burning. So, you know, over most food is digested and absorbed over a couple hour period. So that means you're only burning 200 calories. How much did you eat? If you ate a thousand calories, that means all the rest of it has to go into fat. Basically, you have to store it some way. No. So, you know, we don't favor super large meals. We would like to distribute both the calories and the protein at meals through the day. Yeah. I was just going to clarify that you you said a hundred grams per hour, but you meant a hundred calories. A hundred calories. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think one of the reasons why people are attracted to one meal a day. There's many like the convenience thing the I can eat and gorge my face and then I don't have to eat again and worry about it. It could reduce insulin. There's a lot of different things, but one big argument I hear in the wellness space is, well, that's how our ancestors ate long ago. They had, they killed one large animal. They ate as much as they could, and then they wouldn't eat for days. So that's what we're meant to eat. Like, and I just don't think our body is actually wired to eat that way as you're bringing up. We're, if we follow that scenario, we're also designed to die at 35. So I, our ancient ancestors either died from some illness or got eaten themselves before. So they weren't living to be 95. Right, right. If we only burned, essentially, assuming all things are equal, but 100 calories per hour, and then we're eating a 1000 calorie meal, then maybe some of it or a lot of it will go it would have to convert to fat for storage. So how does protein and weight loss occur? I think you've mentioned studies in the past. So protein has a lot of different effects on weight management. Uh, we know that there are satiety effects. If you eat protein, you're just simply less hungry, where if you eat carbohydrates, you seem to crave them. I, the example I always like is for most people, if you're having dinner and you are you get done and you're basically full and somebody says, would you like another big steak or would you like chocolate cake? Most people will take the chocolate cake. You know, we can eat desserts when we're full, 
but most people can't eat another big ribeye. Um, so there's a satiety effect. Uh, we also know there's a thermogenic effect with uh, protein. We burn about 20% of the calories are just wasted as heat, uh, where with carbs and fat, it's about 5%. So, you know, you, you can actually eat more calories at the same weight with protein. Um, the other one, though, that we're interested in is it helps, you know, the protein maintains muscle mass, so it changes body composition. It strengthens your muscles, which, you know, are your basis for calorie burning. It's your voluntary part uh, for exercise, for movement. Uh, muscles actually help with uh, insulin sensitivity, fat burning, all of those things. If your muscles are healthy, it's why... You know, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and I always talk about muscle-centric health. If you if you keep your muscles healthy, chances are most of the rest of the things will fall in line. If your muscles are unhealthy, it's really hard to maintain long-term health. Right. And talking about long-term health, so in the wellness space, it's always, is it fat? Is it carbs? But I know that, I know Dr. Lyon also loves protein and it's the it's the macronutrient for longevity. Why, why is it the, why is it so important for longevity? You know, I, I'm definitely about a balanced diet. I think that one needs to realize that carbohydrates and fat are fuel. We basically don't need either one of them. We need a total of about three grams of fat per day, uh, essential fatty acids. We're eating about average Americans eating about 80. And we need zero carbohydrates per day, and the average American's eating almost 300. So no wonder we have a problem with weight management. So protein, as I said, helps with appetite control. It helps with thermogenesis. It helps with maintaining your metabolic regulation. The other two are just fuels. And I like a balance of those two. I personally, uh, when we talk with people, we try to get their carbs down to 130 grams per day. And then we adjust that relative to their exercise. As far, you know, the more exercise you have, the more intense exercise you have, the more carbs you can burn. And that's, as an average number, that's around 60 grams per hour of intense exercise. Uh, the average American needs to have at least three hours of intense exercise per day to accommodate the cal carbs they're burning. Again, no wonder we're fat. Fat for me, uh, should be part of the food. You know, right. we've for a long time talked about saturated fat being bad or this or that. Uh, I think the bad part is when you add fat into diets that shouldn't be there, layering something on with, you know, fats or oils or whatever. Uh, I, I like the fat, you know, what is it the fat that comes with milk? That's great. We never, in our weight loss clinic, we never allowed subjects to use skim milk. We think the fat is part of the satiety. We like using egg yolks with the egg. Uh, we like the nutrient profile. I, I don't like using a fried, you know, French fries, but I don't, I'm not afraid of the fat that comes in meat. So, you know, I, I think natural fats have an important place, but I, I don't want, I don't want people having excess fat and I don't want people having excess carbs. You know, protein is certainly uh, you know, it's the building block for the protein and, you know, specific amino acids like leucine are uh, specific triggers for that process. So protein is important to rebuild the muscle protein. That process of stimulating protein turnover, protein synthesis is a very uh, important energy expenditure. It takes a lot of energy 
to replace that. Uh, one of the things I always like to remind people is that the body, every protein in our body is constantly being replaced. It's constantly turning over. So we have to build, even if we're you know 65 or 70, we have to build 250 to 300 grams of new protein in our bodies every day. The liver has proteins that turn over every hour. Every hour, middle of the night, you have to replace those or you die. Muscle, we replace proteins about every 15 to 30 days. So, you know, I like to use the example that we replace the equivalent of every protein on our body four times a year. And so if you don't do that correctly, you're not going to age well. You're not going to refurbish and remodel the body correctly. You're not going to keep it healthy. You're not going to keep metabolism healthy. So that's, you know, and that's all part of the package of, of staying healthy for longevity. And do you think that's a core reason that when women that are a little bit older, they fall and they break their hip, oftentimes they can never walk again. And you, you brought up some scary statistics and maybe you can just share that again. Yeah. The, one of the statistics, you know, we talk about, you know, longevity uh, and people get afraid of heart disease or they get afraid of cancer and things like that. But one of the most significant risks is people become more frail and they fall. And in the United States, people above 60, there are 300,000 hip fractures per year that require hospitalization. And one third of those people never leave the hospital. One third die, 100,000 per year die from a, from a hip fracture uh, in the United States alone. Uh, that's, those are pretty scary numbers. And so, you know, we hear people talking about data from, you know, rats living in a cage in a sterile environment and say, well, the rat can live longer if it's whatever, protein restricted. Well, that's not how people live. We, we confront issues. We have falls. We get COVID. We get you know, we have a heart disease problem. We get cancer. We know that muscle health predicts your survivability in almost all of those cases. Do you think that when they fall, the reason why that they break the hip in is because there's not enough muscle protecting the bones? Or is it the actual bones are also really brittle? I think the fall is because they're weak. Okay. And they can't maintain stability. Gotcha. When they fall and then break something, I think the bones are weak. Mm-hmm. And that is also part of exercise. What, what people, people think of bone and they somehow immediately think of calcium and minerals. But the reality is bone is primarily protein. Pro, bone is built on a matrix of protein and then we deposit minerals on it. So we get weaker as we age without resistance exercise without the right kind of, you know, muscle health, uh, the bones just get thinner and weaker. And part of that's a protein issue. Uh, there's a lot of research that for people who get a hip fracture or bone fracture, having a higher protein diet significantly aids in the, in the healing and the recovery. So people, people ignore the fact that bone is primarily a protein structure also. Right. I always hear that it's a calcium thing. It's a calcium deficiency. So I need more calcium. And then it's like the utilization of calcium. But you're right. They don't talk often about protein. You brought up resistance training. 
So how just, much- to, just to that point before we leave it, the United States has more osteoporosis and fall of that type of thing than almost any other country, and yet we have the highest calcium intake of almost any country. So it's not a it's not as simple as calcium. It's an issue of protein and physical exercise and calcium. They it's a three legged stool, and all three are important. But calcium is frankly probably the least important of the three. Yeah. In our nutritional therapy school, we also learned something similar. Usually it's not a calcium deficient, a true calcium deficiency, but a, some cofactor that works with calcium that's imbalanced, that's causing it. So that, that makes sense. You brought up resistance training. How much is it? I need to make sure and eat enough amino acids every day or protein, or that I need to make sure and do some type of resistance training or stretching. We did a uh, weight loss study um, at the University of Illinois, and we wanted to kind of address that. And so we kind of asked the question of how little can we do? <laughs> and we did, a, a, again, a, a weight loss study with 48 midlife women. And the exercise routine we used was two days a week, 30 minutes of resistance type exercise. The first 12 to 14 minutes of it was yoga. And the last 25 minutes was uh, basically using Nautilus machines, but with no weights on them. So it was about stretch. So obviously, if you want to build muscle, you have to lift heavier weights. But if you're looking to protect muscle, stretch is really the key. So, you know, getting out of bed and, and doing some yoga stretching, do, doing some squats, doing some push ups, those are the kinds of things that will have huge impact, you know, long-term health. If you can go to the gym and get a trainer, that's great. If you like lifting weights, that's fine. But using a rubber band at home will have great effect on you. And we th- the, the data is pretty clear. You need a minimum of two days a week. Three days is probably better. Okay. And then was that more important than their protein consumption or equal? <laughs> Again, in that study, what we found was that uh, the protein effect and the resistance exercise effects were essentially additive. Uh, if you if you just looked at a low protein diet, what we found with a and it was the food guide pyramid, so it was a good diet, it was as good as we could teach it. When they did a weight loss, thirty five percent of the weight they lost was lean body mass, a lot of muscle. When we did it with a higher protein diet, it was 25%, so a 10% difference just by eating more protein. When we added in the exercise, the exercise had a 20% effect. So it went from uh, 35 to 15 in the low protein. It went from 25 to 5 in the... So basically, the additive effect of protein and resistance exercise basically meant the subjects lost like 25 pounds and all of it was body fat. Yeah. So then just by doing two days of um, some level of yoga plus non, like just body weight type of movements, they were able to not lose. Wow. That's pretty. Yeah. A significant effect just by doing something, just by doing sort of weight bearing type of exercises, things you could do at home without ever going to a gym. I know that last time we talked, we talked about how overnight 
And I think it's after you said two hours, your body starts after not eating for two hours, your body starts going back to just breaking down to use the amino acids. So then there was an imperative that after overnight, you want to make sure that you're eating sufficient protein as your first meal. There was a age that you said that's even more important than when you're, say, you're like 10 years old. I'm actually doing a talk in the Netherlands coming up in two weeks as an international protein summit. And that's kind of the essence of the talk I'm going to give. I mean, if you look in the research at people who have studied protein synthesis, essentially every study that has ever been done is done at the first meal of the day. Why is that? It's because during the overnight fast, your body's catabolic, protein synthesis is shut down, particularly in muscle. And so it's the most sensitive time of the day. It's the most sensitive time to test things. And so that, to me, tells you that that first meal has to be important. To your point, we know that after any protein meal, uh, protein synthesis in muscle runs for about two to two and a half hours. In the United States, most people eat all their protein in one meal at dinner late in the day. So that's one two-hour period. So that means 22 hours of the day, you're not eating protein. Your body goes catabolic because 24 hours a day, your liver has to be making protein, your kidney, your brain, your heart. If they aren't, they die, you die. Uh, you have to make those proteins. Uh, and so where is the body getting the amino acids to make that work? Well, it's taking it from muscle. Muscle, we have no storage for amino acids like you know, glucose is stored as glycogen or, or fatty acids are stored as fat. There's no way to store amino acids. So we have to take it from muscle. So that means there's a large part of the day that we're catabolic. Uh, and so we have to then recover. What we know in children is that when they wake up in the morning, if they have a meal with eight or 10 or 12 grams of protein, they'll get a pretty good response in muscle protein synthesis. It's almost linear in children, 5 grams, 10 grams, 20 grams, you get that much more protein synthesis. However, once you pass about 30, 35, you're no longer being driven by growth hormones. You stop growing, and now it becomes much more uh, issues of protein quality, the amount of leucine in the, in the meal, and resistance exercise are the two real keys. Uh, and and so we now know that it takes, you know, around 30, 35 grams of protein, around three grams of leucine to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And that occurs, as far as we know, somewhere around 30 to 35, you make that transition from being more like a child, you know, where you're very sensitive to protein, to much more of an older adult, where you now have to have the right meal quality. So then the people that sort of intermittent fast, uh, maybe 12 hours, 16, 18, should they, as soon as they wake up, if I'm older than 30, should I be eating a meal or is it okay if I wait a little bit? We don't have really any research that defines that. Uh, Dr. Lyon and I sort of debate that you know, back and forth. You know, I think the older you are, then the earlier in the day, the more stress you're under, you should do it as soon as possible. So when I when I think about intermittent fasting, I kind of change it to time-restricted eating. And so I don't mind having maybe two meals a day, 
But I don't think there's any merit to condensing them in time. I would rather the first meal be early, you know, someplace between seven and nine, and your last meal can be later, seven at night, fine. I don't see any merit to shrinking them in time. Um, so, you know, I don't like fasting for adults in general. Uh, the reason to do it is to control the calories. And if that works for you, okay. But the more you restrict, the more fasting you do, the more resistance exercise you better do, because it's not as healthy for muscles. Okay. And then when you define fasting, what do you mean by that? Like, is there an hour? So when you say, I don't like the older you so are to fast. For me, for me, I, you know, I hear people talking about fasting uh, and I start ringing up people talking about fasting for a full day or 36 mm-hmm. hours or, or two days. I don't think adults should ever do that. Uh, we all sleep at night. So there's a 12 hour fast we're going through anyway. You know, is that is 12 or 14 or 16 a magic number? I don't know that there's a magic number to that. Uh, but I think that's sort of the limit. Uh, I don't like to see adults fast more than 16 hours. Okay. And I certainly don't like to see it if they're under stress. If they're doing weight loss, I want them to have that first meal as soon as they wake up. Because I want, because they're in a, they're in an extreme catabolic condition. We know there's a risk of losing lean body mass. We want to shorten that period of time. So, I don't like people trying to lose weight to even go to two meals. I'd rather they stay at three and try and distribute that protein to have as many anabolic periods as possible. Right. It's always a challenge because we'll work with older women that need to lose weight. And so their first thought is, okay, I need to fast because that's what will reduce my insulin. And, And then we tell them the importance of protein. So we say, well, let's just try to get in protein, then maybe and maybe do a whey shake in the morning or eat more um, egg whites, right? So that we can then reduce the overall caloric need, but still get enough protein. But I think, you know, they see a lot of the social media content about fasting, 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 and it's so beneficial. But I also think it's a stressor on the body. And so it really depends on the person. I know there are challenges out there that it doesn't matter the age that they will recommend doing 36 hour fast, but then like feasting and eating sufficient in the short window. And then they fast for 36 hours. And some people are 60s and 70s. And I think that is so not beneficial to maintain your muscle mass. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, it might look like a short term solution to calorie control and weight loss, but the composition of what you're going to lose during that isn't good. And, you know, I think, you know, the term of yo-yo dieting, you know, going through these cycles of weight loss and regaining it because of weird, uh, you know, choices, uh, you're worse off because once once you get beyond, you know, 40, 50, uh, your ability to gain back muscle once you lose it is really low. And the amount of resistance exercise and the weight you have to lose to use to to gain it back is really high and not something that an average 60 year old will do. You know, that kind of weight training isn't something older adults are willing to do. So we don't want them to lose it. If you get beyond 50, we don't want you losing that muscle mass because, you know, Doug Patton Jones uh, had the theory that aging is really a series of catabolic crises. It's not this sort of linear downtrend. Uh, It's basically you're going along and all of a sudden you get COVID and you're sick for a week or you break a bone, or you sprain your ankle, or 
whatever, and you're you're sedentary for a week, you're going to lose muscle mass, and you know you have to protect against that is going to happen to all of us. And can you gain it back? Well, it's a huge effort to gain it back. So the better choice is make sure you're healthy ahead of time so you can tolerate the loss that's going to occur. So, you know, it's aging is something that healthy aging is something we prepare for in our 30s and 40s. If I were to summarize a lot of what we've talked about, it's around 30-ish, the age of 30-ish, we no longer are growing like a child. So it's no longer linear the way that we're using the amino acids. So it's ideal to start making sure and eating as early as we can um, protein, sufficient protein, especially in our first meal to stop us being in a catabolic state. Ideally, we eat two meals, if not, um, or ideally we eat three meals, if not at least two meals, eat sufficient protein, 40 to maybe 60, but that's even pushing it. But 40 ish is at least the sweet spot to get enough. And then if we can at least do resistance training two times, if not ideally three, then that's the ideal way to maintain And then if we were to have moments of like COVID or some reason we're sick and embedded where we're already going to lose muscle mass, then to add to that naturally by extended fasting or not eating sufficient protein and doing yo-yo dieting will facilitate us degrading our muscle mass because beyond, I think you said 45, no 60 that, or no, maybe it was 45 that then if you try to lift the ability to gain muscle is way harder. Yeah. No, I think you did a great job of summarizing all of it. I think you're exactly on track. And, you know, when you're, you know, if you get that illness period, you know, can you, you know, does higher protein during that does, does doing some stretching? I, I I think everyone knows that in a hospital now, they try and get you out of bed as soon as possible. Uh, We, we know that that movement is critical. So you don't lose the muscle mass. I think all of that's important. We know that protecting your muscles is one of the most important things you can do for long-term health, both from just physical mobility, but also metabolic health, insulin resistance, diabetes starts in the muscle, blood lipid problems start in the muscle. If your muscles are healthy and your calories are in, in relationship to your muscle need, you've got a real shot at a long-term health. If those are out of balance, your muscles are unhealthy and you're eating too many calories, your body's going to have problems and heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity all come along. Is there a test that you recommend for the health of your muscles? I know that some people use like those scanners, but they're not super accurate. Is there anything that you would, if you were to recommend a test at all? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really work in that area, so I'm not a great person to ask the, you know, from a research standpoint, we do things like DEXA and we look at body composition and, you know, try and decide how much fat, you know, and sort of by difference that how much muscle you have. A lot of in the elderly literature, there's certain things like step tests. They have tests for getting up out of a chair, how fast, you know, your gait, how fast can you walk across a room? So there's a lot of functional mobility. You know, I think that insulin resistance is simply a muscle test, too. If you have high triglycerides, uh, you have unhealthy muscles. Your carbohydrates are out of balance with your muscle activity. Uh, if you have high lipids, you know, even LDL, 
your muscles are unhealthy in terms of fatty acids. So, you know, there's a lot of kinds of tests that we look at, but as far as one single test that you can easily measure, the person can go to the gym or the doctor and say, I want to do an X. Uh, I don't know that really is a simple okay. single test. And then we've been talking so much about just getting enough protein and sufficient amino acids. We haven't di- really differentiated uh, the differences of animal versus plant proteins. Is it one and the same? I mean, when I see a package of like beyond meat, they show a lot of protein. Is that sufficient? <laughs> <laughs> what we know for a hundred percent fact is that animal proteins, all animal proteins have more essential amino acids than all plant proteins. Plants have proteins for plant structures, leaves and roots and stems and flowers, which are pretty different than arms and legs and brains and hearts. So they're not the same. Plants have proteins for the plant's sake. And and probably at least 40% of the plant proteins are bound to fiber, which we can't even digest. So you know, there, there are clearly differences. Um, three amino acids, essential amino acids that are typically low in plants are lysine, methionine, and leucine, which we talk a lot about. If you think about those, you typically have to eat about 30% more plant proteins to be equal. So if you see uh, a, a whey protein shake with 20 grams of protein, and then you see a soy protein shake with 20 grams, you have to eat at least 30% more of that to be equal. So, you know, you can meet your protein needs at a meal actually with a whey protein shake at about 23 grams, where it takes 33 of the soy shake. One of the examples I like to use is if you take a wheat cereal, take your, uh, you know, I won't name a brand, but if you take a favorite wheat cereal, uh, a cup has about four grams of wheat protein in it, and it says, you know, add six ounces of milk. That's exactly a complementary protein. If you switch to soy milk, for example, it now takes more than 20 ounces to make it complementary, 20 ounces of fluid. So, you know, the mother, the average mother who thinks they're, you know, doing a child a good service by being plant-based needs to realize that that cereal they're giving them in the morning requires a full quart of soy milk on it to make it useful. Likewise with almond milk, which is even worse because almond milk has almost no protein in it. Right. Um, so, you know, it just simply, the wheat cereals are not very, uh, have a very poor amino acid balance and you can't really correct that with a plant-based milk-like drink. So, you know, I think those are the issues people need to know is that the, the problem is when people go more vegetarian, more plant-based, they typically reduce the quantity of protein they eat, and they're also reducing the quality at the same time. We've just published another paper, and, and we have some others coming along where we're looking at how low can you go? Right now, the average American is eating about 65% of their protein comes from animal sources. How low can you go? Uh, a lot of data looks that if you go below about 50% animal protein, you have to increase the minimum protein requirement to meet your essential amino acid needs. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that what's the unintended consequences of this narrative that's out there? And people are ignoring it right now. I mean, they're just not going to get the level of essential amino acids that they need. It's unfortunate because I see moms and a lot of 
families grab the oat milk. One, it's more expensive than just regular whole milk, uh, more expensive than organic grass finished or grass fed. And yet they think they're doing a duty to the environment. And then I see them with young children often, and I so want to just grab it or when they have seed oils in their carts. But I mean, I just can't meddle, but it's, and there's no, there's no, yeah, that's exactly right. The narrative is designed to make you feel guilty for not doing it, but it's not actually telling you the right story. I've been lobbying quite a bit recently that, you know, if you put the word protein on the front of the bottle, on the front of the package, then you need to put the amino acids on the back so that people can actually look and see that it's totally deficient. You know, where the narrative suggests all is well, but in fact, it's not. Right. And the reason that it's not the same is because there's limiting amino acids. If maybe you could just touch on, because I see on the back, if if I was a non-nutritional focused mom, I see that on the back, it says there's protein in soy, protein. soy milk. So why is it different than whole milk who might, maybe my kid can't tolerate, you know, cow milk. So let's take the soy milk, for example. First of all, in regular milk, it's one gram per ounce. In soy milk, it's less than that. So eight ounces of regular milk has eight grams of protein. Soy, it's seven. So already you're down a little bit. Uh, Then how do we get that protein number? Well, it's not actually protein. It's a nitrogen measurement. And the nitrogen measurement, uh, it might not even bring protein. It could be something else. It could be a contaminant in the plant protein. That anything that has nitrogen will register as protein. It's then simply multiplied by 6.25, and that's an assumption that all amino acids have 16% nitrogen. Well, they don't. Uh, Non-essential amino acids in plants actually have more nitrogen. So now you've got another problem that is overestimating the protein that's actually there, and it's not actually addressing the amino acid question. So everything about that protein number on the back of the label is misleading. And yet that's what we use. Uh, We know that animal proteins always have more essential amino acids than plants, always, by, you know, 10% or more, uh, depending, you know, some some plant proteins, grains in particular, wheat, oat, corn, quinoa, are very low in essential amino acids. And a lot of the, you know, the animal proteins, you know, milk, uh, eggs are, are quite high. Uh, so, you know, there's this disparity that, you know, the average consumer just doesn't understand. And this narrative about, you know, save the planet and everybody, whatever, uh, is just, you know, it's just totally misleading without the real facts to go with it. You know, what's interesting is you said that wheat cereals with soy milk or even almond milk, there's a balance of the complementary. I think that oat milk with wheat, it's pretty similar. So I would assume that the complementary would take far more because it's the same type of protein. Is that correct? Or the same type of, you know, I don't, I don't know oat milk off the top, so I can't comment on that one. I haven't really looked at composition. Uh, My knowledge is that oat milk is better, but I I don't know that, Um, you know, soy Soy and the legumes in general are the best of the plant proteins, so pea protein, soy protein, whatever. 
but they all come with some downsides. You know, what's the purity? What's the, what's the phytate level? How, what's that going to do to your calcium balance? What's the antitrypsin level? Um, you know, what, how about the isoflavones? What's the estrogen like compound? Uh, you know, all of those things, you know, right now, soy makes up one to possibly 2% of the protein. What would happen if we made it 5%? What happens if we double it or triple it? Nobody's ever eaten it that way before. Uh, so we have no data about long-term health. We have some short-term studies, but we don't know long-term. And, you know, I've talked with the folks at Monsanto and DuPont about it, and they said, yeah, our goal is not to everybody dump all other proteins. We just like to see it go to 2%. Of course. Of course. It's the same saying of, we, we know that soda is not that bad. It's just um, having it occasion or it's, it's not yeah. good, but just having it on occasion is all we sure. want. And then it's, yeah. I mean, if you have, if you have two sodas a month is a lot more different than having 12 per day, right. you know, <laughs> you know, the, the average, you know, I haven't looked recently, but the average soda consumption in the U S was something like 56 ounces per day. Whoa. Okay. It's ridiculously that. high. Wow. Well, that's crazy because I think a 12 ounce can of Coke has 28 grams of sugar. So that's a, um, that's, that's, yeah, a lot. I think, I think a regular, I think a regular Coke has 140 calories. Right. Right. And 28 yeah. grams of sugar. And then, so if, yeah. yeah, that's a lot. Um, so, <laughs> so we get clients and patients that say, I really don't have an appetite in the morning. So then we say, well, what, what about, I know it's not perfect, but a whey protein shake, assuming the quality is good and clean, is it the way that the amino acids are absorbed in the body? Is it no different, or is it the same as this, like a, someone eating a steak? The the benefit of whey versus a steak, for example, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to it. Whey is about twelve percent leucine. So one of the keys to your choice is. Get, how do I get three grams of leucine to stimulate muscle protein synthesis? Whey is 12%. So you can do that with about 23, 24 grams of protein. In steak, it's about 9%. So now you need four to five ounces to get to it. You know, and so most people, it's a lot more convenient to mix up a whey protein shake and you can drink it as you drive to work versus cooking a steak and eating it for breakfast. The steak, because of the structure uh, and the fat and everything, is probably a little slower to absorb, right. where the whey, because of its digestion property being very quickly, you'll get the muscle effect very quickly. So, you know, you know, we would usually say that, you know, 25 grams of whey protein will probably be great, where you probably need five to six ounces of beef to be equal. Uh, it's just not quite as efficient. Okay. But it will take care. So if somebody didn't want to eat food and just wanted to shake, it's sufficient in terms of amino yeah. acids. Yeah. I, I, I have a shake probably five days a week. Okay. Okay. And then and I, I think, and we, we recommend it for older adults because older adults tend to not like to chew meat. They, you know, their teeth or whatever, or taste, you know, a lot of 
a lot of women don't like meat particularly. So we we recommend the shakes because they're easy to prepare, they're portable, they're easy to drink, uh, all of those kinds of things. So if there's a problem, we like using the shakes because it's just a great way to get your protein up and do it early in the day. If someone used, what's interesting is if someone used your recommendations and started eating sufficient protein and doing the three, three days a week stretching and, you know, lifting a little bit, their teeth would probably be in good condition, even at an older age. So then they could eat the meat and have no issues. So it's just, it's just funny um, the way that it works in, in terms of your work for, you know, if, if something shows protein on the front in the back, the amino acids, you want to give an update of what's going on with that? You know, it's just, I think we're trying to make people and, you know, we, we have dietary guidelines committees and, and they get focused on this minimum number of protein and, and, and they develop things like ounce equivalents for substitution. And, you know, as long as we're eating 80, 90 grams of protein per day, well above the minimum RDA and 65% of it's coming from animal protein, we can tweak one of the edges. If you want an impossible burger once a week, it's not a problem. But if we start shifting the whole diet toward plant-based, pretending that peanut butter is equal to eggs, uh, we're going to get into serious health problems. And, you know, we're just trying to create an environment where we understand amino acids. The argument we're making right now is that meat, that is that protein is sort of like a vitamin pill. We don't have a requirement for the pill. We have a requirement for 14 vitamins inside of it. We don't debate that this pill is better than that pill. We look at the nutrients. Likewise, protein is just a food. It's a, it's a vitamin pill for amino acids. It's basically a food. And we don't have any real need for protein. It never gets into the body. We eat it, we chew it, we digest it, and it's the amino acids. So we've been arguing we it's time, and we have the technology, we have the capability to focus on amino acids, and it's time we do that. And then we'll understand the difference between animal proteins and plant proteins. And if you want to be vegetarian, that's fine, but you need to understand your amino acid needs. You can't have, you know, drive leucine down to two grams per day or, or lysine down to a one, uh, one and a half grams per day and pretend you're going to be healthy. Uh, that just doesn't work. Uh, and so, you know, people need to know that we need to have informed, you know, consumers who, when they look at a label and they're trying to put together a meal, they can do that. We're, we're trying to develop uh, labeling concepts where you can walk into a store and use a QR code and basically say, if I put this food, that food, and that food together, will I have accomplished my amino acid need, or should I do that food instead? And we think that we have the capability of doing that. And, you know, we're working with, you know, groups like Walmart and Whole Foods and Safeway to see if we can't do that, make that a available for consumer knowledge. That would be pretty cool. It's interesting because for fat, the just even public consumption, it's easy to say, oh, is there enough DHA or EPA? And they talk about different fatty acids, but they don't ever, you're right. Like they don't ever talk about amino acids. I don't ever hear, oh, I need more leucine um, because yeah. I've been deficient in my meal. So um, that would be yeah. amazing if they did that. Yeah. I, you know, we have the capability. I mean, 
we got the whole concept of protein way back at the you know late 1800s, early 1900s, before we even knew what the essential amino acids were. So it's not surprising that we talked about protein back then. But for 30 years now, we've had the capability of doing amino acids. We can do them at high, high volume. If you look at some of the protein quality things like now, PDCAS, diaz, there's only 100 foods or ingredients that have ever been studied. In the United States alone, we release 15,000 new food products a year. Wow. We need a better way of studying those. If you look at protein bars on a shelf and there's eight of them, how do you differentiate? Right. You know, we can do that. We know how to do that. And it's time that we give the consumers those tools. I love it. That sounds amazing because you're right. I think people will look at the protein and see, oh, this one has 30 grams. And then they look exactly. at the calorie. I think the calories is next to the carbs. And then the other one is, oh, this has 15 grams. And then and then they'll make the decision yeah. that way. And they're done and they think they've accomplished it when in fact they could have made a totally wrong choice. Is there a, so there's a lot of different ways that in the functional world of testing that you can test amino acids, there's urine testing, blood testing. Do you have a preference? The difference in testing right now I'm talking about is foods is that right, right. we now have, we now have the ability to do uh, mass spectrometry with fluorescence detection and we can do high volume testing. You know, we can do, 400 foods in a day. Uh, so we could we can do that kind of de- testing. You can do it in blood and urine and things like that. But that, you know, I'm talking about doing it in the actual foods. Right, right. No, 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 I understand. Um, I mean, so, some people will come to us and say, I just want to know if I'm sufficient in my amino acid needs. And so people will say, do I do the urine test? Do I do blood test? Um, I think there might be other varieties, but do you have a preference at all? They're basically all meaningless. Amino acids in the blood are stabilized by the organ. Okay. So if you go into a fasting condition, you're going to break down muscles to do it. So basically amino acids in the blood, I mean, you can look at it after a meal and they'll tell you something about the meal, but you can't really look at, you know, blood proteins or urine amino acids or things like that. They're really not going to tell you anything unless it perhaps an extreme deficiency. So in terms of just monitoring health, those kinds of measures don't tell you anything. Oh, that's fascinating because it might be pulling it from your muscles. And so you don't know where those amino acids are coming from. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the liver, as I said before, has to make protein 24 hours a day. And so basically muscle breakdown provides the amino acids to keep the blood stable. So the liver gets what it wants. So Basically, the muscle is buffering the blood and the urine 24 hours a day. So those measures aren't going to tell you anything. Right. I mean, that's the same thing that the blood does with a lot of our minerals. So you don't know that you're calcium depleted until you're now at osteoporosis. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you've got an extreme imbalance, you might be able to see that in the blood. But that's a pretty rare situation. That's not a normal diagnostic situation for general health. So yeah, it, unfortunately, blood proteins, blood amino acids aren't used a useful tool really to monitor your protein needs. Okay. No, that is why we continue. It's why we continue to use muscle protein synthesis because it, it's a way we can use to test the environment. 
Okay. No, that makes sense. Where can people find all your work? And if they wanted to follow the work that you're doing in terms of trying to get the amino acids available to the public, how can they follow? So, um, you know, I, I'm on Twitter at, at Don Lehman, and I try to post updates of things that there. You know, I, I my Twitter account is purely about science, nothing else. Uh, I have a website called metabolictransformation.com, which has a lot of our information about our weight loss studies and things like that. And I'm pretty easy to Google if people are familiar with uh, 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 Google Scholar. Okay. Uh, you can Google my name there and get a lot of the publications. So uh, those are all ways you can track me down. Okay, well, thank you. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. And I always learn so much more when I speak to you. And I, it helps me understand you know, our recommendations, I used to be much more, I I always thought of the baseline, uh, the double the RDA at least, but then we would incorporate more fat for maybe balance of hormones and other things. But as I learn more from you, and then do research around the stuff you're talking about, I know the importance of protein, especially for our older, um, our older clients, and we focus on I need you to get in the protein, because we understand how important it is for longevity. So thank you so much for all the work that you do. Yeah, we we certainly always teach diet based on start your decisions of, with protein. And you can make different, if you choose that you're going to be vegetarian, that's fine, but everything else then has to go with it. If you choose to be a carnivore, then everything goes with it. But your first choice about what you should eat should always be about a protein decision and right. go from there. So anyway, I always appreciate talking with you. I certainly appreciate the work you do. And I think you provide great information. So always a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, guys, I hope that this interview was a lot more tactical and helps you understand the science around why maybe one meal a day or why eating a sufficient protein in the mornings is so important. A lot of our clients will just eat maybe two eggs and a piece of bacon or two eggs and a little bit of ground beef. And it's not sufficient protein, even on a carnivore diet. I know that eating animal meats is so important. And a lot of us already do that. But there's a little bit more nuance to just get that optimal level of wellness. Another big thing that I think we touched upon that we didn't really dig into was just reducing our life stressors. So if there's a lot of stress, you want to also reduce that and also then support your body by eating sufficient protein or amino acids. I look forward to Dr. Don's research and all that information to get amino acids, the labels, especially slapped onto nutrition labels and products so that we can make better choices. And the average mom can go into the store and know, maybe I shouldn't be getting oat milk for my child. And if they're intolerant to cow milk, then maybe I should be feeding my kids some ground beef or some bacon or some sausage instead of focusing on eating cereal. I hope that that day comes sooner than later and I'm excited for it. So I appreciate all the work that Dr. Don does to really help us understand the importance of amino acids. We do that for fatty acids. So I think it's time that we shine that light on amino acids so we can make better decisions as a community about nutrition. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat, get enough amino acids per meal. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. 
If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.